you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and we'll continue our study this morning by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. It was his very own son. So a number of years ago, I heard of a pastor and his son in a case of church discipline. So his son had been a pivotal member of the church. In fact, he was very involved and he was even, you know, among the leadership within the church. And yet it came to light that he had committed some rather serious sins. Now his dad, the pastor of the church, along with the other pastors, were bringing this matter before the church because it had come to that point. And so this was the dad. His dad was the one bringing his very own son up for church discipline. Now, it wasn't easy. But it was right. Now, in that, before the church and that church and maybe one day our church is the question, how would the church respond? Would they obey scripture? Would they follow what God had called them to do? Or would they rebuff and simply say, you know what, that's not the winds of the day. So we're just going to go with the winds of the day. Now, of course, there is no doubt that such a case, indeed any case of church discipline, is not easy. But amidst emotions and relationships and the waves and pressures of our culture, every church must ask, what is to be the basis for our dressing matters like these. Will it be Christ? Will it be God's word? Will it be the gospel? Or will it be the prevailing sense of the day? The prevailing winds of the day? Well, this morning, Paul addresses an issue of sin within the church of Corinth. And as he is addressing this, this will require the church of Corinth to act. They must not stand by. They must do something. And they must not simply do something like before Paul, but what they do, they must do it before the Lord. And they are not only to act in regard to the person who had sinned, but they must act in examining their own hearts as well. So to see this, let's begin reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. May the Spirit of God work through His Word in our hearts and in our lives and in this church. It is actually reported that there is sexual morality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife.
and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, as you have seen, if you've been here as we've walked through 1 Corinthians, I could even ask you, what has Paul steadfastly lifted up again and again and again? Well, he has lifted up and pointed to and directed us again and again to the cross. And so they, the Corinthians, and we must take up the cross Now, you won't take up the cross, as Paul has said, as a church, as haven, and as believers, without you also saying with Paul, as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, when he said, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And as Paul said that, As we have seen, he not only said that, he exemplified that. He lived out the cross of Christ in his life. They lived out the cross. They lived out the example of Christ. Which is, if you just look back, what he just said in chapter 4. Yet as the apostles, they were exemplifying this, exemplifying the cross... The arrogant on the other side of this, they didn't exemplify this, they disdained this. And so rather than looking at the apostles and saying, wow, I mean, praise God, see how they model the cross. Not because it's about them, but because it's about Jesus. That's why they're modeling the cross, because they are about Jesus. So they didn't say that. (laughs) So rather than saying that, What did they say? Well, they said, look at the apostles. I mean, look how weak they are. I mean, how miserable they are. You know what? No, thank you. We'll keep our riches. We'll continue to be kings. And you can just keep all that to yourself. Thank you very much, apostles. And so the arrogant then... They exemplified a prideful spiritual superiority. They rejected cross-centered godliness. And as we saw, as we talked about this, they embraced a worldly godliness instead, which is the threat for every single American 
an American Christian in our nation. Yet now, as we come to our verses here, we see the dreadful result. And so a fruit of their spiritual pride was this. Public, heinous sin. The truth is, their pride has really been apparent throughout this letter, hasn't it? And when we saw this first, how their pride led to division among themselves, you know, one against another. And so it was that Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 6, he said, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And so that was going on. This kind of prideful superiority there, but that wasn't all, right? The pride went deeper, yet still it was rooted directly in how they saw themselves. And this is why Paul, he sarcastically chided him, and as we saw then, sarcastically, not as in like, oh, that's really funny, Paul, as in like he rebuked them. And so he said in chapter 4, verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign. So that we might share the rule with you. And then along with that, as he's seeing these arrogant believers looking to their own spiritual superiority as these kings, thinking of themselves as kings, he says in verse 18 as well of chapter 4, some are arrogant as though I'm not coming to you. And so they believe themselves to be spiritually superior to others. Now, as a fruition of that arrogance, they have a heinous sin in their midst. A case of serious sexual morality has been reported to Paul And it's of such a serious nature that even the pagans don't put up with it. (laughs) That's bad. Now, just to put that into perspective, you know, Roman society was not a model of sexual purity. Now, as I say that, I mean, it's partially, I mean, it's true, but it's partially joking, but at the same time, We back away and we can say the same exact thing of our nation right now. It is not a model of sexual purity whatsoever. So we really are in a very similar context right now as the church of Corinth was then. And so in Roman society then, and you could say the same today... But some would engage in extramarital sex and basically, in greater or lesser measures, it would just basically be overlooked. You know, like no big deal. Just, this is what we do. They're sleeping around over here. That's just fine. And so all that was going on, however, they would not overlook this. (laughs) Unbelievers who did not have the Spirit of God in them would not have tolerated what this man was doing in the church of Corinth. So what was it then? So what was this guy doing that was 
so bad. Well, this man, a member of the church of Corinth, has been having sex with his father's wife. And so his stepmom. Now, there's levels of that being bad by itself. I mean, you could just add a question there, like, what if she got pregnant? And that just adds even more layers of trouble to this. And so that by itself is grievous. Yet even more, along with that, behind Paul's, like, surprise and indignation is what the Old Testament law has made plain. So Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7 through 8. God commanded there, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And then also Deuteronomy 22, 30. A man shall take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. And so the weight of this man's sin is great. In his sin, he is undercutting layers upon layers of God's ordained plans for fathers, for mothers, for sons, and for the family. Even more, which is part of the challenge we're facing today, his actions are counter-gospel. Counter They're counter the image of God. They're counter-marriage, not supportive of marriage. They're counter-the-family. And so it is then that Paul, as he hears this, coming from the church of Corinth, he calls for a double-pronged response for the church of Corinth. So first, they are right to respond with a godly grief. A godly grief. So they think that they are godly. They think they are even kings. <laughs> and yet, what are they tolerating within their church? And this is why Paul is so taken aback. As this man is sleeping with his father's wife, you are arrogant? I mean, really? You think that you're the spiritual cream of the crop? And this is going on in your church? And you're fine with that? I mean, this is where Paul is. Really? <laughs> you guys think you're kings? I mean, come on. And so he says in verse 2, rhetorical question, ought you not rather to mourn? And a rhetorical question has an obvious answer. Rather than arrogance... They ought to have mourned, and they ought to have wept, and they ought to have repented of their spiritual pride. They should have responded with an action-oriented grief before the living God. Not looking at the culture, not looking at everyone else, just God. Now, lest we detach ourselves from this, this is a question for you also. What is the nature of your repentance? Like, what do you do with your guilt when you sin? Where do you go? What do you do? 
Is it merely a sort of worldly sorrow? Where you go, maybe a worldly grief resulting from embarrassment. So you're embarrassed by your sin. And so you go, i got to make this right so I can get rid of that like embarrassment that I'm feeling right now over the thing I did. That is not godly repentance. Or maybe you're repenting so you can avoid the consequences of your sin. That is not godly repentance. Or maybe you're just trying to avoid the consequences of your sin entirely. Or because of the consequences of your sin, they're just so great. You're looking at them and you're, you're feeling sorrow. But you're not sorrowful before God. All of that is worldly grief. Not true repentance. True repentance. It's true. It's humble. It's godly. And it's God word. You know, as one writer, he put it, he said, the remorseful sinner hastens from Christ. I've got to get it right. You can do that even in this church. You can do all the right things, but not actually be repenting. It's a hastening from Christ. So the remorseful sinner hastens from Christ. Maybe to drugs, maybe to sex, maybe to the world, maybe to movies, maybe to whatever it is. But the penitent flees to Christ. As in the truly repentant. They don't run from Christ, they run to Christ. Every single time you sin. Nothing else. You're not running to ice cream. You're not running to food. You're not running to all kinds of things. You're not running to your job. You're running running to Christ. Every time. And so first, they ought to have responded with godly grief. So examine what kind of grief you have. When you repent. And so they responded, they are to respond with godly grief rather than spiritual arrogance. But then, second, they are right and even must respond with church discipline. With church discipline. Now, this is expressly what Paul calls for them to do in verse 2 let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, as you hear that, I know some of you are probably more familiar with church discipline. Some of you less familiar with church discipline. And you're like, well, he said church discipline a number of times this morning, and I have no idea what he means. Does that mean they get a paddle out or something? I mean, what, what happens here, you know? And so for the purpose of clarity, we need to ask, what is that? What is church discipline? Well, here it is. It's the loving pursuit. You might want to highlight that if you're writing it down. The loving pursuit of someone who is living in unrepentant sin. It's loving. You may not think it's loving at the time if you're the one who's committed the sin. But it's a loving pursuit of those who have or are living in unrepentant sin. Now, at this point in this passage, Paul is saying it's time. Even imperative that the church of Corinth 
lovingly pursue this man by excommunicating him from their church, from being a member of their church. That is, this is what he's saying, and just let it hit you as it will, right in line with Matthew chapter 18, Megan read a moment ago. They are to, before the Lord, say, this man is no longer to be treated nor to be considered to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is calling them to do. A weighty action. Now as Paul makes clear, he's utterly in agreement with this action. As though he himself were present when they make this decision. Yet as you're hearing all this, note well the purpose of that loving pursuit. And here's the purpose. The person's eternal good. The person's eternal good. It's not mean. We're not to be, at least it's not to be mean. We're not to go around like if it comes to that within a church where we have to practice church discipline to this extent. We're not going with anger in our heart towards that person. We're not going with vengeance. It's not so we can pay them back something. It's none of that. It's for the man's good. Or woman's good. So verse 4 and 5. Paul, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul is saying their aim and hope is that by removing this man from the church, from being a member of the church of Corinth, the man will repent. That's what he's saying. His idol of sex, of pleasure, of a woman, of self, I mean, whatever it might be in his sinful flesh, their hope is that that would be put to death in him. So a cross, back to the cross again, a cross to the man's flesh. Or in other words, the man would flee to Christ, either... For sanctification, if he knows the Lord still, and he's living in sin. Or for salvation, if he doesn't know Christ, and he's been living in this sin. And saying he knows the Lord. And so here's the stark reality. If he doesn't repent, what, what does that mean? <laughs> it proves that he never knew the Lord in the first place. It doesn't say, it doesn't mean he lost his salvation. It means he never knew Christ at all. Because, as John says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is saying, no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one can do it for a believer. An unrepentant heart... Now listen to this, and I want you to be thinking of your own heart. 
An unrepentant heart is not a mark of true faith. It's a mark of an unbeliever. That you don't know Christ. And so the hope is that this man would see the gravity of his sin and repent. And in this way, he may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's why they're doing this. Because they love this man fiercely. They love Christ fiercely. They love his church. So his hope is to be in Christ. And their action is to be done before Christ. Now where do I get that before Christ? Well, we see it here. Before the Lord and the name of the Lord and the power of the Lord. But I think Paul likely has in mind here actually Matthew chapter 18. And this is actually the main thrust of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18. We often think of that, those verses in regard to prayer. But the main context of those words, and I'll read them to you, is the church gathering for church discipline. And so it says, again, Jesus says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, talking about church discipline, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, still talking about church discipline, there I am among them. Now that just adds a lot of weight to what is Paul is saying here and what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18. That when they do that, they're making a declaration of this person in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus. There is a heavenly component to all this. As though Jesus is there standing in agreement saying, yes, I agree with what this church just did. A weightiness to this. And so as we hear all this and as we read all this, and as we see these things, we need to see and realize that spiritual pride is far more dangerous than you might think. This was the result of their spiritual pride, their worldly godliness, great sin, heinous sin, public sin. We often play far too much with spiritual pride when in reality it really is not harmless. A holier-than-thou heart is not harmless. It is dangerous. It's not without reason that we read in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. If you know that passage, and there it is on the screen, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so you might have your marks, and I don't know if, how long all of you have grown up in church, but maybe you were in that time where you could have that card and you could fill it out. I read my Bible today. I prayed today. I brought my Bible today. I gave today. And that's what I mean, This, except it's not a card you're filling out. It's actually your life. 
That's how you view your godliness and like, yeah, look at me. Look at my godliness. Look at my spiritual stars. So you might have be and might be doing those things, but is there within all of that just this stream of spiritual superiority? I am way better than that believer over here. I'm way better than him or her or them. Are you so high and lifted up, a king even, that people must bow before you? Maybe not physically, but whenever they're around you, they're basically bowing to your godliness. Godliness. They must come to you, and you don't go to them. Oh, no. They must bend low in your presence. And maybe you wouldn't say it, but maybe you're thinking it. I'm even above sin, too. This kind of prideful spiritual superiority. Just think that you are above all these things. But friends, we're not. Every single person in this room, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have of the Bible, it doesn't matter how many hours you pray every morning, it doesn't matter if you get here early, you get here late. Our hope is Christ. Period. And all of us need him absolutely desperately. So none of us here come on a higher level. All of us come on that level. There is Christ, our hope. All of us locking arms together, looking to him. He's our hope. So consider yourself this morning and see spiritual pride is far more dangerous than you might think. Then also, before Christ, see the local church is rightly called to practice church discipline. Now, it's not to be done harshly, but rightly in that before the Lord for our good and their good. Now that, like I said, it doesn't mean that's easy. But Christ calls us to practice this when we must. Emotions aren't to drive the boat. Legalism isn't to drive the boat. But the Word is. The cross is. Christ is. Faith in Christ is to drive our actions. I may feel this way. You may be hurt. You may not want to like, go that step, but your eyes aren't there. Your faith is in Jesus Christ and His Word. And that really is the Christian faith too. <laughs> You're just looking to Christ by faith in everything you do. That's why you can take up the cross and go and face persecution. You can go to your job and maybe lose it for following Jesus Christ. You can have your family reject you And not have anything more to do with you. Because your faith is in Jesus. Your eyes are on him. And his word. And you're not going to look away.
which is exactly where Paul takes us next. Jesus. <laughs> to the hope of the redeemed Christ, our Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb. So their boasting was not good. He says that in verse 6, and so he asks them, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now what he's talking about with that and leaven is the leaven of sin. The leaven of sin. So leaven is fermented dough. And so when it's added to a new lump, it spreads throughout the dough and it helps it rise. We often think of yeast today for this purpose, but this isn't yeast. And so he's talking about that, how this leaven can go throughout the dough, yet in this case, he's not using this at all in a positive sense. It's not good. A little sin in is like leaven, and so easily can overtake the whole lump of bread, the whole lump of dough. And so the repercussions of sin, in this case, spiritual pride, can affect the whole body, the whole church, all the members and people, which is what was happening. You know, we may want a kind poison. We may want a gentle bomb, you know, just kind of gentle, you know, that didn't really hurt that much. You know, harmless wreck. A dry flood, a soft bullet. But friends, sin does not function that way. It's absent of those adjectives. It's just poison. It's just a bomb. It's just a wreck. It's just a flood. It's just a bullet. And so it goes on hurting and tearing and ripping away. And this is Paul's point. And that's not just true of the Corinthian sin. It's true of yours also. Could it be that's what's behind it all? I would be a no good pastor if I didn't ask that question, even stings. And this is what I mean. This question. Is spiritual pride behind all of this? Our Bible studies are filling our heads with knowledge and everything else. We must ask ourselves that question. Not just you. I would be a no good pastor if I didn't just ask that question of you, but of myself also. Is spiritual pride the driving force behind your life, my life in this church? We must ask that in view of what Paul is saying here. And I just say, and I even pray to that, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Show us. Because that's not what we're called to be. Which is why, what Paul, why Paul turns to magnify next. The unleavened bread of Christ. 
the unleavened bread of Christ. We're not to be defined by the old leaven of sin and self. The old man, not talking about Christian perfection. That's, a, that's false teaching. Not Christian perfection. We're not to be defined by the old man, by unholiness and impurity. We're to be defined by Christ as those who are unleavened or as those who are holy in Christ. Which brings us back to Paul's point, doesn't it, of this whole letter. Corinthians, you are to be the holy people of God in the midst of an unholy world. Haven Baptist Church, you are to be a holy people in the midst of an unholy world. We are new creatures in Christ. Why? Verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In that one sentence, Paul, (laughs) a host of biblical imagery, just explodes out of that sentence there. And so as the last plague came upon Egypt, and each Firstborn son among the Egyptians died. There atop the doorpost of the Israelites was what? The blood of the lamb. And what happened? The plague passed over, i.e. Passover, passed over the Israelites. And they were spared. And we wouldn't be too far from saying they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so here, Paul is now applying this imagery to us that we have been spared. Whether Jew or Gentile, through faith in Christ, His blood has ransomed us. His blood is over our door right now and that forever. And so he's saying in view of such glories as those redeemed by Christ were to live undividedly for and before him. And so he says in verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now he's not saying, all right, church, what I want everybody to do is start celebrating the Passover. He's not saying that. He's he's saying celebrate the one the Passover pointed to. He's saying, let your life be lived in accord with Him, with that new covenant Lamb of God. Live in accord with Christ who has redeemed you, church. He is our celebration. He is our life. He is the one who defines us. Ongoingly, we live our lives rejoicing in and in accord with the Lamb who was slain for us. And so he's calling them to that, and he's calling you to that. And so, as a blood-bought people of God, rightly address sin in the church, 
and in your own heart. Both of those. Yes, Paul has been talking about sin within the church with this man. But that sin, like every sin, it begins somewhere, friends. And it doesn't, all, it doesn't begin so often in public. Where does it begin? In private. In your very own heart. And this is Paul's broader point. Their spiritual pride brought them here. So we're right to ask, is that true of us also? Right now, before the Lord, let him search you out this morning. Ask him to search you. Ask him to show you. Ask him to make plain any sinful way in you. And friends, like a good surgeon, ask him to address the issue at its source. Now for you who are here or may be here who may not know Christ this morning, this means it's time to admit the truth. Not to run from it. Not to flee from it. But to admit it. That you are lost. You're separated from God. And you don't know the God who made you. And you need him. Your sin has been just as we have said. It has been a poison. It has been a bomb. It has been a bullet. Yet now, today, Christ is able to come and give you the remedy. And the remedy is not found in the world. You can't buy this. You can't work for this. those things. 